What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain, here for the No Film School podcast for the week of May 27th, 2023. I am here with screenwriter Jason Hellerman. Hey! Filmmaker, screenwriter, producer, podcaster extraordinaire, Gigi Hawkins. Hello. And Gigi is going to introduce our special guest with us this week, Capella Fahum. Gigi. Yes. Welcome, Capella Fahum. We actually talked about you on the podcast the other week mm-hmm. as our production wolf slash production whisperer, and it felt appropriate to have you on because you will be fe- we'll be featuring you on No Film School this week with a guest post. Welcome. I'll I'll give a quick introduction to Capella. She's a producer, an executive producer. Her work has been featured everywhere from South by Southwest to on Oprah's network, Super Soul Sundays. Her work has been on Tribeca, Netflix, Amazon Prime. And outside of an extensive background in production and film, Capella has been an outspoken advocate for inclusion, wellness, and fairness, and regularly speaks to and mentors young filmmakers. Capella grew up in Detroit and attended Detroit public schools, received her BA in psych Mm -hmm. at the University of Michigan, Go Blue, and earned a Master of Applied Positive Psychology and a Master of Philosophy in Organizational Dynamics from the University of Pennsylvania. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Okay. Honestly, you guys, like, so, okay, so excited. I, okay. Let me, I'm, I'm honestly like a, a horse, like out of the gate. So I'm very excited. You're going to have to calm me down. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. All right. Where do you want to go, girl? <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the piece that you'll be publishing with No Film School mm-hmm. this week. You, you emailed us mm-hmm. with this op-ed and it was perfect timing to be thinking about how the studio systems work in this film industry where we don't have HR departments who are necessarily looking Mm -hmm. over and looking out for people Mm -hmm. who work in the film industry. I would love to. Charles, thank you for having me. Jason, thank you for having me. Gigi, I just can't thank you enough. So I want to give you just a tiny bit of context because I think it's important of sort of where I am today and how I have these beliefs. I've been in the film industry since... mm, I don't like to date myself. I'm going to say since the mid-90s. It's been a minute. And I've loved it from the, the like the second I, I got into film, I loved it. I And the reason why I loved it were the people. Like I felt like everyone from your grips, your gaffers, 
your cinematographers and the PAs all wanted to be there. Like we love the industry. It is driven by passion, right? So I fell into it using the five foot rule. I was bartending because that's what you do to make money with a psych degree. And I would let anyone within five feet know that I I was looking for a job. And so finally, someone said, I do know someone who's hiring. Now this is in Baltimore, you guys. It's in Baltimore. So it's not quite the film Mecca, right? So he said, I know someone who's hiring, and he gave me his, his the, the, he said, give me your resume. And so I went, made this really sparse resume, and it ended up being at this big production house in Baltimore. So anyone big, like when Major League was shot or Washington Square, these are very old movies, they would always go to this big film, big film house or studio in Baltimore. And so I started there in sales, and I didn't know anything, right? And it was just like, people would call me up and they would say, how much for time code burn-in? I didn't know what time code burn-in is. I was like, I'll get that, get right back to you. And I'd run upstairs and I'd ask the post super, like, what's time code burn-in? And he would take me in the control room, show me the numbers. He goes, that's it. It's just time code so people can reference where they are. And that is like literally my whole career. The whole time, you guys, and as fast as film moves, no one person can know anything. You have to have these relationships. So relationships have just become, I mean, it was my instinct because I was a nice person, but it was a a means of survival. It truly was my film school. And so I just came up like that, like treating people with respect, with trust, like they were valued, like they matter. Everyone, you know, from the top to the bottom. And so that leads us to where we are today and the op-ed that I wrote. Because, so the, (laughs) where do we start? The strike is a symptom of a greater problem, right? And the problem is how we treat each other in this industry, and not only this industry, I think in many powerful industries where it's held by few, you know, whether it's the money, the resources are held by few, and technology is changing all that. It is changing. It's getting more diversified. It's getting more inclusive. So now you don't have to be a big wig with these all this money and and resources and contacts in Hollywood to make a film. You could be a 14-year-old child in Mumbai and you can make a film with your phone. You can make an app to to distribute it. You can figure out a way to monetize it. Like things are broadening. So what do we do? And then what is Hollywood? So I think Hollywood is this collection. It's a mecca. It's a collection for all of us creatives to come and meet and collaborate in one place. It is not for all of us to come bang on doors and and have to do inappropriate behaviors and just get treated poorly and, you know, to try to get in. It is a place for us to all come together and and collectively create, right? So am I starting am I starting to get on the path, girl? Absolutely. <laughs> We're nodding enthusiastically <laughs> because it's so refreshing to yeah. hear to hear to be validated and that's what we want it to be. So it, you, and I would talk like one time I met not long ago, I met a, a girl at a bar and she was a producer on a regular series, like an, a well-known series. And I'm telling her these ideas. Now my ideas are just be kind, right? <laughs> Be kind. Give people very space. Basic. They're very basic. <laughs> Trust them. And I have a model. It's called Relational Appreciative Dynamics that actually teaches leaders how to treat people a little bit better. And it includes trust. And I can break down any of these constructs, but it includes trust, mutuality, and relational energy. 
right? Because energy, positive energy, relational energy matters. We've all been in these rooms where someone walks in a room and they either like raise the energy, it's, it stays neutral, or they suck it out. That is a real quantifiable, measurable thing. It is not some meta, you know, metaphysical thing like, oh, I, I can't describe it. No, they're measuring energy. And successful organizations that have more positive energizers are more successful. So I'm getting a little academic. but Well, I, I think it's interesting <laughs> because you, you do have your master's in positive psychology, which is a relatively <laughs> new field in the context of the study of psychology. Usually it's psychology has, has been focused on getting to a net neutral, but this is mm-hmm. looking on at how to make it better and how pairing that? that with your organizational background, looking at how mm-hmm. systems and, and studios and businesses and corporations work. Again, mm-hmm. historically, it feels like the conversation of, is about how do we get to net neutral versus let's move towards a more positive world, a more positive workplace. And this is something that's only evolved in the last couple of years across industries outside of film. And Mm -hmm. the film industry is always catching up to the bigger conversation when it comes to this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I was listening to some of your previous podcasts and, you know, you and I already spoke. I'm a huge fan of Sharla. Like, what she was talking about is what we all need to talk about. Oh, back to the woman I met at the bar who was a producer for a series. I told her these ideas. And do you know what she said to me? She was like, this is really innovative. I'm like, girl, I'm about to run around my office. This is not innovative. Like, this is human, right? <laughs> like, treating each other with some sort of mutuality where you matter as much as I matter. That's human, right? And I like to, I don't know who said it. I think Charles said it a week ago or a couple of weeks ago. He's like, we're striking for humanity, right? Healthcare, the ability to put a roof over our head, send our kids to a safe school. We're striking for humanity. What are we going to do with it? I grew up in Detroit and my father was laid off from the plants and he ended up working. He was a custodian at Detroit Public Schools, but he got laid off because of automation. And he's been talking about this, I'm talking about for decades, girl, about how automation is changing things. And if we as a society decide, okay, it's changing things and we can use this for good, right? We can use AI for good. We don't have to use it to eliminate people's livelihood. Because the bottom line is, if... I mean, let's let's think about this. So we start eliminating people's livelihood. They can't pay their bills and everyone's unemployed except that the tippy tippy top. Who's watching the content? Like nobody wins, right? If we have to keep everyone at a decent standard of living, quality of life, and we can do we we can do this. And I honestly think like Hollywood, it's the it's the place the dreams are made of. This is I mean, people go to the cinema for hope. They go to cinema but for love and laughter. Like this is the place to do it. We can we can set the exemplar for how we're going to use technology to improve quality of life, not eliminate. All right, I'm everywhere. Charles, Jason, please, someone, someone take this away from me. Well, I was actually gonna say, so I, I like a lot of what you're talking about. I think it's really interesting stuff. My the the thing I, I sort of want to dig deeper into is sort of the process of learning when to trust and bring kindness. Yeah. Because you know, I think there's also a, a big counterbalance to that, which is I think a lot of people walk into the film industry hoping for collaborations of equals and find themselves taken advantage of by people that are not trustworthy. I think that is a thing that does occur. So, like, the thing to be conscious of as we talk about these things is, like, you know, what's the old Soviet trust but verify? Like, I think Mm -hmm. it's good to approach others with kindness, but it's also important to remember the power dynamics 
with which people might be approaching you because, you know, there are some like there are legitimately bad people who work in Hollywood. And, you know, I've certainly I myself and others have, have attempted to work collaboratively and supportively and with kindness with people that are actually just exploitative. So it is sort of an interesting thing to think about, like, where are the opportunities I have to be kind? And I think specifically that's often pointing downward, like anybody below me, like, obviously, like if you're lower on the call sheet, if I'm ordering you around, we can, mm-hmm. you know, that we can do that with kindness. I can, like, I remember as a DP working with gaffers and like, we can collaborate on lighting the scene together. You're not, I'm not just ordering you to do stuff. But I also think like when we, re- we need to remember when we're going upward, I think it's, you know, the more power someone has, the more uncomfortable they should be. And the more people below them and the totem pole should be holding their feet to the fire. And like, you, you don't always necessarily need to approach people with a tremendous amount of power with kindness. Cause a lot of people acquire that power with some skills and personality traits because Hollywood is an industry. I I'm, I'm a dude from the Midwest. I'm kind of a yokel. I did not really appreciate the power and big footy games that go on at the higher echelons of power until I was sort of around it and watching some of the like gorillas tossing their shit at each other, like with people that I was trying to be like, we're going to collaborate together and then watching them like take over things or shove people out of the way and being like, Oh, that's how this is played. So I think that there's like a full spectrum, but the thing it really goes back to is, is maximum self-respect, like knowing that you have value that you are bringing to the table so that if someone is trying to muscle you out of something or Bigfoot you or take advantage of you, like kindness to yourself to advocate for yourself within that environment and make sure that your position within that environment is being respected. But absolutely, like in terms of the way people treat newcomers to the industry, people with less power in the industry, like there's no excuse. Like it's not the nineties. Like I can't believe that anybody still shouts in meetings. I was in a meeting a couple of years ago where someone like got shouty and was slamming on the table and everybody else was like, what? No, like the, the, the culture has already changed and that is not ever necessary in the making of a movie. Like we are not, we're not in an emergency situation where somebody is trapped under a building and we have to like urgently get there. Like we're making movies here, folks. Like we can, we can do this with kindness, consideration and support. I think you're in a unique position, Charles, as a, you know, a leader and a professor teaching the next generation of leaders in the film industry. And what was interesting in my time in film school was seeing the people who had quote unquote power, a.k.a. directors in a film school. So even in the grand scheme of things, they don't have much power in the film industry, but within their microcosm, they did seem to hold power. So when you're when you're teaching people to, who are in those power positions, how do you sort of close the gap to have them lead with strength and and kindness at the same time? Well, what's interesting is one of the things that we discovered really early after the film school was started is that we have to more actively teach things with more consciousness than the film industry is not an industry that really trained management skills in anybody. Like even film Zero. schools as late as the nineties, <laughs> like it was like, all right, we're going to teach you like the technology was so complicated, like teaching people how to develop film and manage pulling and pushing and emulsion. Like it became this very technical thing. And so like we had a real think when F- Fierstein was started of like, oh, we actually, we actually have to actively teach collaboration. We have to actively teach management skills and interpersonal relationship skills and soft skills. I hate the term soft skills. Cause like 
like they're more important than the hard skills and calling them soft skills make them seem like towels. But I'm like, no, 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 no. Getting along with other people, driving it, like leading a team to create the thing you want to create is more important than understanding. Cause as, as Capella so wonderfully said, like there is no one on any film set ever who understands all the technical stuff. So you can't master the technical stuff because there will always be a new technical thing. But if you master the soft skills, if you learn how to lead and guide people and get the best out of people. So we actively, from the start of the program, we really focus on like analyzing, like what makes a good collaboration? Like why do we work with others and how are we collaborating with others? And, and what can you do to make a project stronger through the contributions of a variety of people? It's especially difficult with this generation, not, not to be an old middle-aged fogey, but like, you know, this is a generation that does, we started having to spell things out in syllabi that certain assignments were in person. Like I'll give an example, a lookbooks. A lookbook is like this wonderful time where for my generation, the DP and the director, you meet up at a coffee shop, you bring your art books, maybe there's a laptop there and you're looking up images and you're talking and you're iterating and you're having these ideas that can only really be done in person. Like it's an iterative process. And then we started to notice over time that our students were just doing them over email where a director would just email, like, these are the five images I'm thinking of for this. And the DP would say, okay. And what we figured out is the problem with email and a lot of written communication is it reinforces power. All of a sudden, if it's a DP and a director just sitting at a table, you're just talking. And you can push back because you can read tone and you can read voice. But as soon as it becomes a text written email thing, the director's like, this is what I want. And the DP's like, okay. And that iterative process of pushing each other to go further and try something new goes away. So we've had to put things in syllabi that are like, oh, this is an in-person meeting. It should probably take this long or longer. And here's what this should look like because this generation defaults to online communication. They default to, oh, if we can do it over email, we will, if we can. And that's not always, you know, we were back in person five days a week by September of 2020 and the film industry will probably always stay in person. Everybody else who can work from home should, but the collaborative process with which we create these images and tell these stories is, is often best done in person. And it's hard to replicate a lot of that creative process remotely. And we, so we really look at that and we try and be really explicit about power structures. You know, I always, there's, there's a great feminist article from the seventies called the tyranny of structurelessness where, you know, there's this idea in the sixties of like, I we're going to get rid of article. the Oh, it's so good. And it's built around, you know, and I teach this article and basically it's, you know, anytime you remove the structure from an organization, there's this like hippie juvenile fantasy of like, and it'll be structurelessness. And all that structurelessness ends up meaning is that all of these invisible structures, the popular people, the people who are more better bullies, all of these other things come into play that actually lead to more intense stratification, a more hierarchical structure. But by removing the official structures, it all becomes invisible and harder to navigate. One of the beauties of the film industry is it's highly hierarchical, but it is collaborative within that. And because of the safety of the clarity of structure, right? Like the director is the director. They're going to have the final say. So it's so funny. One of the things I've learned the most while teaching, because while teaching, you should be learning. One of the things I've learned the most while teaching is we get all these amazing guests and we often have lunch with the guest, like just the faculty. And like the best directors we have as guests, we just had Aichapan, we're Asako, the Thai director directed Uncle Boomi, a bunch of other things. So sweet, so nice, so deeply curious about other people. 
And it's funny, my first job in film 20 years ago, I was working at Landmark Films, working in the marketing department, and Marina, my boss, told me, she's like, one thing you're going to notice is the directors ask the most questions. Actors want to talk about themselves. Directors want to know about you. And I still think about that 20 years later, because the greatest directors we have spend the whole lunch just wanting to learn about everybody else. Because when you're the director on set, you have the power. You don't need to constantly demonstrate the power. If you're deeply insecure, there's nothing more insecure than a director who's like stumbling their foot foot and like, I'm, I'm in charge. I'm the boss. But like, I've worked with all of these great directors who are just like, I'm here to learn. I'm here to explore. I'm here to create a good, healthy environment. I want to know about other people. I want to grow. And it's this beautiful thing. So, you know, we try and teach the tyranny of structurelessness, why these structures exist, why they're about efficient moving. But what's also fun about a film school is you rotate through the positions. So just because you were a director one week, you're going to be a DP in three weeks. You're going to be an editor in four weeks. So you're, you learn to shift into the role and shift out of the role and not let the role turn you into a monster. Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in L.A. by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10-day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA, you'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What I, I love that there's this tangible takeaway, a way to actually almost manage up and apply these concepts of positive psychology when you are in a subordinate position it, within this hierarchy. You specifically called out, Charles, the idea of you know, getting together to do your lookbook in person. And it feels like something if you're a cinematographer or stepping into that role, you can make the case for why we should do this in person. So even if you're working with somebody who, a director, for example, who is applying that power, whether they know it or not, I, I think that you can push upwards against traditional power positions. And I feel like that's something that can help to slowly break things down. I, I love this diagnosis of like the directors are coming to you and they're curious and they're asking questions. And I feel like we've been talking to a lot of directors. I think of Saim Sadiq, the director of Joyland, who really is really looking to sort of break down the traditional hierarchy within production to create a a safe, but also much more dynamic production environment. So I'm excited to see how, and I recommend listening to that interview if if this is at all curious. But, but it, I do think that I, I do want to push back against the idea that like if you're in a position where you are not the highest person of power that you can't lead with kindness. I think that there are ways and of course there will be just straight up assholes period in this industry, but that's part of the learning process and learning who not to work with or who you're not going to look 
forward to working with and instead gravitating towards people who are at least open to and willing to change and sort of shift their mindset around things, even if it's something as small as why don't we actually get together and work on the lookbook? I think this will help us get on the same page with how we want to design our film or how we want the film to look. Yeah, Jason, you, you've you been in the industry, you've only been in the industry. So how is it learning about this? It's how we're thinking of it outside of the film industry or film school adjacent. It's so funny. I mean, <clears throat> I did film school and, and I found like most of what you said to be true. You know, I'll say that like going to film school, at least I think I'm, I'm like one of three people from my college class that still work in the industry. And I, I think I'm one of two in grad school that are still here. So I do think a lot of times like when it's college, especially if it's not like a trade school specifying for something, people are just handing in assignments. It's hard to get anyone to do anything. When I came to Hollywood, I, you know, my favorite thing was like we were all it was like all of the kids who handed in the assignments that wanted to be there are now suddenly in this place doing stuff. A couple of years ago on No Film School, I wrote an article. It was like like an assistance guide to like how to how to like be in Hollywood, right? Like what do assistants do? What's expected of you? What should you be doing? Like how to handle certain situations and it's still up on our website and it's still something I think people go back to or we get emails about, which is super helpful. And the one thing we talked about is like how when you're an assistant, it's funny, you go on these drinks with other assistants, right? It's like, oh my God, if I'll meet you at 830 and we'll go to, you know, wherever and we'll commiserate. And the first thing you talk about is whether or not your boss is a jerk. It's the first thing. And everyone has a story, whether it's their boss, whether it's a famous actor or actress who was mean to you, like whatever. It's the first thing you bond about because Hollywood has this weird inherent toxicity that goes back to, you know, uh, yeah, the ultimate Hollywood assistant guide. Like, but it goes back to like the 1920s, maybe even earlier of just like breaking in. You do a favor for me, blah, blah, blah. And it's it, it is, you know, I don't want to cry on the podcast. So I'll just laugh. It is like funny. You know what I mean? Like you're like, oh, my God, this is crazy. But everyone has them. Right. And I think I remember my boss who I was very close with who who never yelled at me like wonderful guy. But like he would tell me horror stories of the way his boss treated him in the 90s. I mean, awful things that I was like, you know, you would be like, I would say like, oh, I, you can't get away with that today. But then I would go to get drinks with someone and they'd be like, oh, yeah, my boss threw a Diet Coke at me or, you know, like whatever, like all of the horrible things you've heard. You know, I had a guy who said his boss tried to throw a printer at him and then threw out his back. And like he was like, I was like, couldn't laugh, but I was so happy he was hurt trying to throw. It's like, who throws a printer? But you know, like these are all real stories. And also remember, really it would have been difficult. a laser printer because it's yeah. the film industry. So we're not picturing inkjet. We're picturing like a big old brother laser is what. Yeah, you it, was, yeah. it was classic. But, you know, it, it is like it's something we talked about. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do think it is getting better. Right. Like I do think. I mean, I'll be 36 in a couple of days. By the time this comes out, I will be like, so I, thank you so much. But I, but I think like our generation was hopefully the generation that was like, you can't do this. You know, and I, I could say like that printer guy definitely got canceled and was like a pretty famous cancellation. So like and that stuff did come out and that printer story was in, uh, you know, like a big Vanity Fair piece about it. So like that stuff comes out. I know Mo Ryan at The Hollywood Reporter is writing an amazing book right now that I've, you know, got a chance to take a couple sneak peeks at that's like about that toxic community, like being a Hollywood assistant and how like, you know, shit rolls downhill, but doesn't always get you promoted, that sort of stuff. So like these things are coming out. I'm hoping it's changing with us. Uh, it's interesting to see it from the inside out. You know, it's like I've I've certainly heard had bosses who yell, talk to directors who yell sometimes to what they consider to be very efficient, you know, and, and yes. I think it's like maybe some of you disagree with. But I, I do think it comes down to like how you treat the lowest common denominator. Right. If someone's bringing your, if you're a yeller, but 
You're also like very kind to the person who's bringing you coffee. I'm like, you know, I think it's like a little bit more complicated of an issue. I, I do want you to stop yelling at people, but also I'm like, oh, well, who are you yelling at? You know, if you're just yelling yeah. at the producers, maybe I care a little less. You know, sorry, Capella. But, well, but you know, like, if you're yelling at me, question. I hate it, you know? Yeah. So, so you, you, what you're, you're reminding me of a conversation that started at the top of the pandemic and a little bit before that, the pay up Hollywood conversation, which was specifically yeah. about assistant like advocating for assistance and having making sure that they had fair pay, but also like in this survey that they did some insane percent of people, I think it was like 25%. I'll look it up have had objects thrown at them. So like oh, you're yeah. not a, your friend's not alone in the printer. I'm I curious, had one, not, not by oh, my great boss, but I I got smacked in the head with a tennis ball on like my no, second day of work at a place. What? And it was like literally like someone like, oh, should I not have thrown that at the intern? And I was like, no, you shouldn't throw it at anyone. You shouldn't Good. throw I'm it so at any you, human being. Yeah. That leads me to my question, which is like, what do you do if someone yells at you in this industry? And and Capella, like from a positive psychology and when your perspective and when you're mentoring people, what, what do you do? Like, what do you do in that moment? Mm-hmm. Well, first, I wanted to touch base with Charles because everything you said is absolutely appropriate. And trust me, I have my, I have my stories of people taking money from me, taking projects from me. I mean, just treating me poorly. Like I have my story. And when I talk about these things, Charles, I'm talking to leadership. That's what I am. I'm a leadership consultant, coach, speaker. Like that's, I talk to producers and studio execs. So when I talk about these behaviors, I'm talking about top down creating these environments because to me, they're just as responsible for, as they're responsible for keeping the crew safe to me, they're responsible for the crew's well-being and mental health. This, this does not have to be an industry where we're suffering. I mean, normal work, I got into organizational psychology because we spend 33% of our time at work. Not in this industry, right? It's more like, what, 70, 80% of our time in this industry. We deserve to have some sort of peace. So I, I talk about that, and I love your take on soft skills. And I spoke to, I'm pretty very super top film MFA program. And when I talked to them, I had a whole session about trust. Like they were in tears. They were like, nobody's talking to us about this stuff. Like they're not talking about. So I love what you're doing, Charles. And with the, I I do think, Jason, that this generation, these millennials and these Gen Zers, they're not going for that. Like I had wrote a whole like 50 page thesis on that. They're not going for this behavior. So I do think you guys are the change agents. So thank you. Thank you. Um, Okay. So what do you do when people yell at you? All right. So there's something called emotional intelligence and there is, it's, they say it is, can account for 85% of good leadership past like skill and education and connections, like emotional intelligence, the ability to stay calm, read your emotions appropriately, read somebody else's emotions appropriately and react appropriately, right? So there's a test for this. I'm certified and I'm happy to give it to any of you guys if you want to do an EIQ and I'll sit with you for an hour and we'll go over the results and how you can get stronger in different areas. And that to me, when someone is yelling you, it is you can't change other people's behavior, right? But you can change your own. So it is important to remain calm, get the information you need, walk away and do what you have to do. It is very important that you do not yell back. That's my take. There might be people who say something different, but what are you going to do? That's my take. What do you think? I've done both. I've yelled back <laughs> and, it, and it has not 
been beneficial. I've taken it and walked out of the room. Also not beneficial. I think 99% of it is, you know, in being an assistant, like if you're at the very bottom rung, I think it's, you do, you can listen to the yelling, but you don't have to take it. I'll listen to it. And if there's something that someone needs and it's part of my job to do it, and yeah, I'll go do it. But also if there's HR, I'm going to say like, hey, I can't be yelled at this job or I'm going to walk out. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if it's there's not HR and it's the end of the day and you have a boss and it's 7 p.m. and he's he or she's packing up for work, I think it's totally appropriate to go into their office, close the door and say, mm-hmm. hey, you know, I'm sorry. I, I missed the call with China or whatever, you know, got them upset. Like, I'll absolutely make sure it's on the calendar and do whatever. But I I'm not going to work at a place where I get yelled at, because I think the one thing we forget is our value. Even at the bottom rung, you're there because someone has to do that job. They need they do need you to do that job. And I think you it's absolutely okay to say, like, you know, whatever, even if you didn't mess up, you can you don't have to own messing up. But let's say you did and you got yelled at, which has happened to me many a times. You know, it's look, mea culpa, but also like. I'm a human being. I, I got to be treated Absolutely. better than this. You know, I, I think in Tina Fey's book, she talks about like being yelled at as a young gopher or something like that. And she was just like, like, my parents love me. You can't yell at me like this. You know, like, oh. I think like that's I always, uh, you know, love that book. And it is very funny. But I, I think that's the reaction. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you don't have to do anything, but it's OK to stand up for yourself, whether that's mm-hmm. later in private, if you feel better for that or, you know, in the moment and say, like, I'll absolutely do it, but you can't talk to me this way. I'm a human being, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and I do think, thank God for pay up Hollywood and for some of this stuff, because you couldn't do that before. That wasn't around when I was it. I took getting yelled at dozens of times for the dumbest things for not like finding a cake topper for a kid's eighth birthday, you know, stuff that's like not part of your job, but also like, oh, who knew? I didn't realize it was an emergency to get a cake topper, you know, but that's sort of the way it goes. But because there's also a model for wild assistant stories. Like, I'm really lucky. All of my assistant stories that are wild, no one was that mad later. There was one where I had to pick up a a writer, missed a meeting because he broke his wrist. And so I, I was interning for a manager and he wanted me to go to the hospital and get the cast to send to the production company to prove why he'd missed the meeting. So I had to go to a hospital, get them to give me medical waste, which they didn't want to do. And then while driving to the production company, my car caught fire. And... And he was like mad, but didn't yell. He was like, I'm glad you tried. And it's like, you can do that. You can be the crazy, because that was an objectively crazy errand he sent me on. You can be that person who goes way above and beyond for your clients. Mm -hmm. And then when the intern fails, you can just be like, yeah, I wish you'd pulled that off. Could you have Mm -hmm. a car that doesn't catch fire? Which, you know. The emergency versus urgency, right? And I've had plenty of assistants, Jason, yell at me as a producer. Right. Like, and I was like, you know, and I would just sit and I would take it. Not plenty, a few though. I would sit and I would take it, usually in camera department. They're very intense in camera. And, and I would listen and listen and listen. And I would understand where this, where they were coming from, you know, because it's intense and it's scary. And, and then I would describe emergency versus urgency and that everything is going to be okay. Because someone said it earlier, we're just making movies here. Like, we're just making movies. Well, I think this all pivots sort of interestingly to the ongoing strike, like the Writers Guild strike. We we got to keep talking about it. But also the news, if you've missed it, it's a couple days out of date. But, you, you know, maybe maybe you're not following this as obsessively as the rest of us. Maybe SAG, we're your only actress. source of news in Hollywood. I mean, I think that's probably true for some people. I like, respect if that. You're, well, if you're busy and like also if you're busy enough at work, like I remember when I was really busy as a DP and I was shooting all the time. And like, there was a month I shot every single, every day of August, 2008, I was on set. And like, 
I didn't really know what that, like, I would bump into people at parties and they'd be like, oh, did you hear about this going on? And I'd be like, nope. I'm not reading Variety right now. I'm just shooting. So I think that there's probably maybe some people who aren't up to speed. So we we should do our job and keep them up to speed, which is SAG-AFTRA, the Screen Actors Guilds and American Federation of TV and Radio Actors. They merged about 10 years ago, but we still call them by both names. They they did an SAV at the board level. An SAV is a strike authorization vote. So the board of SAG-AFTRA decided to send to all of the members of SAG-AFTRA. And, and SAG-AFTRA is a much bigger union. There's like 160,000 members. And how big, the WGA is much smaller. Jason, do you remember offhand how many how many writers there are? There's not 160,000, I know that. I think it's around 11,500, maybe max, and it could yeah. be 7,500, I don't have the exact number. But I thought it was I around I think I read 11,500, yeah. So, and it's a much bigger deal. Like, obviously, I love that the Writers Guild strike. I, I love the Writers Guild, and it is a big deal that they struck. I'm not saying it's not. But if other unions start joining the strike, if SAG decides to strike as well, that becomes a big thing. It's 160,000 actors. It means everything stops, right? There are still some productions still shooting with scripts that had been finished before, like sort of rolling on. Some shows have stopped, some haven't. You know, there's some late night shows, but like if SAG goes, new entertainment is just over. Like, we're just not seeing anything that's not already in the can and still being edited. Like, we'll still get one more episode of Secession because they shot that last summer. But the rest of it is just frozen. SAG has only had two big strikes. They're not nearly as strike... They're not usually as strikey. What do you... Is there a good word for, like, happy to strike? Strike happy. Strike happy. (laughs) Yeah, they're not not as strike happy as the WGA. But they have the same... They have some different needs, but residuals are where they've always made their money. And streaming residuals are the same thing WGA is fighting over. And then the SAG is really taking the AI threat very seriously. And with good reason, because the the fear they have, nobody is that worried about The Rock, right? Like, if you want The Rock in your movie... Nobody is going to go out there and just be like, well, I've got a digital scan of The Rock and I'm going to put him in my movie and it's going to be okay. What they're really worried about at the SAG level is all the small performers. Like if it becomes a default in the contract that your likeness is licensed to the company and they get to scan you and take your voice, all of a sudden that one scene that you needed to be in three years later to tie up some subplot on a long running show, if they can AI that because they've already licensed everything and you don't get paid extra for those days that decimates careers because there's yeah. some, the big A-listers will be fine. As Capella was talking about earlier, the worry we have about AI is not that no one will make money. It's that eight people will make money and everybody else won't. And the actors are very conscious of this. And I know, like, I personally know people who have been in projects and the thing that happens where they've been AI'd already, where something is happening at the end of, production, usually what happens is you get into post and pickups. Pickups are a normal thing. Halfway through the edit, you're like, you know what scene I need? I need this scene. And on a big enough production, you're having these ideas late enough that the only move is AI. And I know people that have had their voice AI'd where, and they're not happy with the performance, but it's in big movies where they're like, I never said that line. They took my voice, they thinned it, whatever. And now the camera's on the back of their head and they're saying some other line and the performance is no good and it makes them look bad as an actor. But it was in their contract. So the studio could do it. The network could do it. It could just be done. And so when we think about AI, like the big nightmare of, well, we're just going to have digital 
actors and we're going to make whole movies. That's a long way off. But we are already at the point where any Darth Vader voice you've heard in the last five years, James Earl Jones did a voice print, licensed it. That's all James, like, that's all AI now. And the idea of, oh, I need this actor to say something different. I need them to be like, the briefcase is under the table. And I don't even have to bring them back for it. I can do it for, like, I just find an angle where their mouth isn't in frame. Or I use AI to fix their mouth. And I can make them say anything with whatever AI performance it gives. It, like, that is destruction for actors. You're no longer an author of a performance. And so I think SAG could strike. And I think that they're right to strike over AI. And I think that they're at the forefront of striking over AI for all of us. Well, was it you that said a couple of weeks ago, Charles, united we bargain, divided we beg? I mean, that's like a, an old labor quote, but I say it a lot well, because it's I've so true. Like I'm in Detroit. I never oh, heard yeah, that yeah, in yeah. my whole life. I've never oh, heard yeah, that. Oh, yeah, that's on like every that. mural in Detroit. Yeah, because it's an old <laughs> UAW thing. Because it's true. It's like, we have to all stick together and say no fucking way. If you want that line dubbed, yeah. bring me back to dub the line. It's not that hard. I can dub it in my closet, but you have to let me do it. James Earl Jones is different. Man wanted to retire. Disney still wants to make Darth Vader. But that was a specific separate negotiation. In 1977, it wasn't in his contract they could do it. And the fear we all have is that the next time you get hired as an actor, there's a clause on page 15 of your contract that is, we have the right to do whatever we want with your voice print forever. And if we don't all agree that that's bullshit, then every individual actor who desperately just wants a, a, a recurring guest spot on a show will just sign that contract and will be too afraid of losing that guest spot that they won't cross that out in the contract. And that's why we have to do it as a team. We have to do it as a group. It's the only way we will have the leverage. Those small player actors are some of the hardest working people that I've met. And you have to, you have to be at the point where it is the only thing you can do because those folks are always working other jobs, always hustling, constantly honing their craft, the ones who stick around. So I think that it is so important to to advocate. And I'm so glad that that actors are supporting those act- other actors. Actors with power are supporting those other actors. Oh, yeah. The actors have an, a lot of nice solidarity. It's a, yeah. So we don't know the results of the essay, the full membership SAV yet. But the fact that the board is putting out an SAB, it's been a long time since I've remembered about that with SAG. DGA has an upcoming negotiation. These issues affect the DGA differently. They just do. We are 10 to 15 years away from the point where, you know, you're on set and then there's a robot next to you that wants to direct the performance differently. <laughs> like the robot director that's like, no, actually, I think we need the camera over here. Oh and you're like, God. like that, that'll happen, I'm sure. Well, actually, I guess the bigger fear is we're moving to a place where we're like, Aerie has a new like robotic camera thing out. So you don't have to be in the room while you shoot and you can control it all remotely. And eventually what's going to happen is those are going to have AI and you're going to block a shot. And then it's going to have like little clippy style suggestions. Like I see you're blocking a moving camera shot. Would you like to drift in a little closer there at the end? And you're going to have to click ignore. And then eventually it's not going to, it's going to default to its better ideas for how you should block the shot. And then it'll have little notes like, Maybe next time you should ask the actor if, and you're going to be like, ignore. But <laughs> I, feel, I feel like we're, we're further from that with the directors. So they have a different battle. I think they're going to be more focused on residuals. And I think if SAG and the writers can get residuals out of streaming, the DGA, DGA has different priorities. And it's fair. They're, the reason they're separate guilds is they're different jobs. But I Charles, think the writers... 
Correct me if I'm wrong, but when the DGA negotiates, they don't have any directors in the room, right? They're the only guild that does it that way. They just have lawyers negotiating, right? Whereas the writers and SAG each have, I think, at least four representatives, four writers in the room and four actors in the room to negotiate. But the DGA is just doing it. So like. And I've never understood why. Do you have better backstory on that? No, I think, I mean, it's the way everyone used to do it until I think like 1956 when the writers were like, yeah, we should be in the room. These are our problems. No offense to any lawyer out there. I love my lawyer. Shout out to Will for getting me paid on time. Shout out to Steve. Yeah, (laughs) but like, but I do think it's like, you know, you, the big worry I always have is like, well, you don't know what my problems are. You know what I mean? Like that's, you know, or you can't intuit what they should be. You know, a lot of why the writer strike is where we're a lot of why we're at where we're at is because of the pandemic and not being able to negotiate two years ago. Right. And like being stuck in that situation. But we're there now. Right. And I, I do think you know, my worry for the directors is like if you don't send a memo to those lawyers and say like, hey, <clears throat> AI will be a big deal in five to ten years when it is a big deal, you might be too late. Well, except we should never forget that famous example from 2007, where Patrick and Patrick Verone, who is WGA and one of the writers that was in the room, talked about this. And this goes back to the things we we're talking about with Capella and where you are in power structures. Patrick Verone was a writer on Futurama, was mad about the way residuals were going for DVD and streaming, got elected to the Writers Guild board, ousted some people who weren't as writer friendly, and then was in those negotiations. And Patrick Verone then went back to being a writer, which slaps, but also talks a lot about, like, it was the membership of the WGA that pushed me. Like, we got to a place where we were like, you know, this is fine for digital residuals. And we took it back to the membership and they were like, fuck that. Digital is the future and we need more digital residuals. And he was like, all right, I guess I'm going back in. And the thing remains true across all groups. Like, you know, there's that famous FDR quote where a bunch of activists came to him and were like, we need you to do X, X, and Y. And he was like, I need you to make me. I need you to get out in the street. I need you to get in the press. I need you to make it acceptable that I do it by moving the public window because I would like to do it, but I'm a politician. And that those lawyers are going to say the same thing, which is like, I'm a lawyer. I will take your orders on the AI thing, but you also need to put public perception behind you. You need to talk about it publicly. You need to make the case publicly. You need to, and you need to push the lawyers because lawyers work for you. And like, I've seen so many people get talked into bad deals by their lawyers because it was an easier deal for a lawyer. But we should never forget that like, you know, the lawyers working for you, that is their job. And so you should be pushing them. So yeah, I completely agree. It's weird that DJ hasn't changed that in 70 years, that, there, that there's not a couple directors in the room. I would love if I found out Michael Bay was in that negotiating room. That would make me super Yeah, happy. I mean, no offense, but all those yeller directors, the ones who yell, maybe they should be in the room. <laughs> like, I love <laughs> being efficient, but I'd love for, you know. I love to torture the AMPTP a little. <laughs> I love channeling that energy and using it for good. That's what needs to happen. Uh, all right. So we talked about the SAB. We talked about organiz- organizational dynamics in Hollywood. The last topic we were going to crack this month, is, this week, is what should we be learning from foreign films? I remember once I saw Neil Labute talk like 20 years ago. And one of the things he said was he listed a bunch of... Ho- like, this is back when... LA had more movie theaters and foreign movies actually showed, but he listed like four foreign movies that he'd seen. And he was like, how many of you have seen this? How many of you have seen that? And nobody raised their hand. And he's like, I could, I could rewrite any of those 
and submit it to any executive in this town and they wouldn't even know I'd done it because nobody's watching foreign movies and there's great stuff going on and you guys are missing the next wave of cinema. And it was like, I'm not phrasing it exactly as he did because it's 20 years ago and I'm old, but it's such a good thing to remember that like, we are in a world cinema moment. We always have been. The, the cinema has been a worldwide voice for the whole time of its existence. And uh, yeah, Gigi, you said there was a foreign movie you saw recently where you were like, whoa. Yeah, I saw a movie called The Hole in the Fence. It's a Mexican-Polish film about the poison of power structures and sort of this Lord of the Rings-type story of a all-boys summer camp set in a rural, remote town in Lord Mexico. Lord of the Flies? Yes, yes. Did I say Lord of the Rings? You did. Oh, my God. <laughs> very different, very different. Lord of the Flies. Thank you so th- Thank you. I... Very different. Lord of the Flies. And I turned it on and I watch a lot of screeners to prepare for no film school. And rarely do I get lost in a movie like this. I was it was all in Spanish and I have not been lost and so disturbed and so moved by a, a movie in so long. So I, I think and and one of the things that's sort of great and I'm trying I think we'll have the director and the writer on the podcast in a couple of weeks is that, you know, they are unknown. They are they have like a thousand Instagram followers. So they're gonna blow up, I have no doubt, because this film, you know, it played at Venice and it has a lot of buzz around it. But it's a great way to also get to know filmmakers in different storytelling styles that are sort of outside of what we're used to seeing and things, just the commitment to the cinema of this particular film shook me to my core. And I can't wait to talk to people about it. That's the one bummer about screeners is you can't turn to your neighbor or your friend or your girlfriend or your boyfriend and say, oh, let's unpack this movie. Well, except in Hollywood, the beauty, to go back to what Capella was saying, the beauty of LA, I. I love New York and I'm very happy to live here and I'm going to live here the rest of my life because it's the best place to raise kids. But one thing I miss about LA is once you're there a little while and you get in the, you get in the gang of people who are like either going to screenings at DGA or going to indie, you know, IFP used to have all these screenings before things would open at like the Pacific design center or like, there are all these, like there are all these ways you get in the routine of seeing stuff a month or two before it opens. And then there's this whole community of people who are like, we're all seeing these movies early and we're talking about them and we can't wait for them to break bigger, but we can all talk about it with each other. And I miss that because there is sort of a fun little thing when there's a bunch of us. I imagine that's also changed with the whole online screening thing where it's no longer discs, it's now just codes. So there's probably a lot less going to the movie theater to do that than there was when I was first starting out in the industry. But like, it was such a... Yeah, it was such a thing that was so cool. And, you know, while we're, I, I'm just going to plug one of the movies that changed the way I think thought about movies, also a Mexican movie, Duck Season from 2004, if you haven't seen it. It's, it, it is just wonderful. It's black and white. It's small. It's two kids who are home alone and their parents are out. And it blew my mind in its power in the joy it brings of the observation of life. And there were moments in that film that so perfectly captured childhood that it's changed the way I've thought about movies ever since. Like I had not thought of how important the observation of life was in cinema before I I saw that movie like when it was out in theaters and I was like, whoa. 
I was like all, already halfway through film school and it still like blew my mind of like, oh, that is a part of cinema that like matters and is real and wonderful. And I can't believe that movie came out 20 years ago. There's something that kind of grounds as well if watching a film in a different language because you also are relying on the cinema, the cinematic element in a different way. Wow, I, I'm... Can't wait to watch this movie. I I love to hear about the movie that changed everything for someone. You have to pay attention. I mean, that's the thing for me. You know, foreign film is something I came to later in life. It's something I was like, I've seen all these Hollywood movies. I'm a big nerd. And and it's like there's an entire world out there full of cinema. It's like, oh, you oh, you've seen 3000 movies. Well, there's 20,000 movies waiting for you, you know, and it's such an interesting thing for me. I think, look, well, one of the one of the hardest things about watching a movie not in the theaters now, right, is when you're on your couch and you get a text message during it, you're probably going to look away and look at it. And then you might just check Instagram and then you might look back and suddenly heat is over and you're like, where did those three hours go? You know, and I think when you're watching a foreign film, you, you know, especially obviously one with subtitles, you have to watch. You have to pause. If you miss some scenes, you can't just passively listen and do whatever you have to be absorbed and you have to do it. And. I think for me, you know, if we're, we're all going to recommend a foreign film, I'm going to give a shout out to a film professor who changed my outlook on foreign films, John Cavallero. He's now head of film at Bates University in Maine. He was my professor at Penn State, wonderful guy. And he taught Bollywood, a Bollywood class. And it just, I had never seen a Bollywood movie. I knew practically nothing about, you know, India. And I went, we watched, you know, many different movies, but the one that stuck out that we had t-shirts printed and everyone in class wore them around campus. And I think like talked about was uh, from Diwali Duhani Lajenge. And it's a three hour romantic comedy that's incredibly funny, just about uh, Indian diaspora in London and across Europe. And then what it's like to go back to your roots and the idea of a love marriage versus an arranged marriage. It came out in the nineties. And the reason this movie is so special is that it debuted in 1996. It was so popular that it's continuously been playing in theaters up until the pandemic happened. And then as soon as the pandemic stopped, it was the first movie they put back in the theaters there. It's an amazing, amazing movie. It's playing in one theater there. It's like on the Jason Allen bucket list of going to India. If I ever go, I'm going to that theater. I'm watching the movie. You know, every single, I guess, showing is supposedly sold out. You have to get there early. But to Wally Dhani Lajange, amazing movie. Just uh, incredible songs, great romantic comedy, and so funny and accessible and something that I never thought as a, you know, person, I would be like, oh, it's my top 10 all time, blah, blah. Like, absolutely is, you know, watch it if you can. Um, check it out. Cabela, do you have a, a favorite foreign film that changed everything for you? I do not have one, but I'm definitely going to check out both of these that you guys recommended. Or, or Gigi, what was your recommendation? It's called The Hole in the Fence, and it's coming out in select theaters and on VOD okay. in a couple of weeks, so sometime in okay. June. But you could see it, how the contagious excitement for these films. Yeah. Just, I haven't felt this on the podcast in in a minute, and, yeah. and it, it was it was great to hear hear of these of these two films, Jason and Charles. Yeah, I'm definitely okay. going to check out the, the the two that Charles and Jason and you you haven't seen Charles's film, right, Gigi? The one that no. you recommended to. Okay, so we can talk about it. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> seen it either. I can't wait. I'm I literally oh, yeah. sat and wrote them down. I'm very excited. Yeah, awesome. Right, and they'll hopefully all be in the post about the podcast. All right, guys, where can we find you guys on the internet? I'm only on Mastodon these days. Charles Hayne at barbecue.snoot. I would take a blue sky invite though, if anybody wants to invite oh. me to that party. I would okay. take one. I'm at Lost in Graceland, and you can find my work at ggihawkins.com. 
So my inst yeah, my Instagram is Capella F at Capella F is in Frank. And my podcast is When Is Now podcast. And yeah, you can find and then you can find me at capellafahoom.com. And we'll and be sharing. Me. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. At Jason Ellerman on Twitter, thejasonellerman.com. Email me once again. Readers, please send in any articles you want to read on No Film School. We're cranking through them. Happy to research and do them. And I think this week we're going to have a lot of really interesting stuff, not about only about the strike, about why David Simon says he'd rather put a gun in his mouth than use AI to write anything and all of the other hilarious things. So, you know, check us out on NoFilmSchool.com. And you can check out Capella's guest post this week as well. 